Welcome to another edition in this series of talks organized on behalf of Spiders, the sole platform for initiating discourses on equitable and resilient society. The talks complement a series of original papers published on the Spiders platform dedicated to outlining the building blocks of post-capitalist political economies and societies, not oriented around growth and profit, but rather good lives and a flourishing web of life in times of profound planetary change. Hosting these talks, our founder of the Peer-to-Peer -peer Foundation, Michelle Bowens, and myself, Rok Kranz. And today, to help us outline some of these building blocks, we're joined by a distinguished guest, Dr. Blair Fix, author of the paper, Living the Good Life in a Non-Growth World, Investigating the Role of Hierarchy. Happy to have you, Blair. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so to start off, uh, we'll, we'll um, kind of pose the standard question here when we pose all our uh, guests, which is kind of what brought you to study uh, the things that you do, um, specifically uh, the role of hierarchy in, in societal um, transitions. Um, so yeah, maybe uh, uh, we think it's really great to know uh, straight from the horse's mouth, uh, so to say, of uh, what kind of, yeah, brought you to study one of these uh, uh, topics that we're very interested in and think are a kind of key component in thinking through uh, the great challenges of our times? Well, that's a good question. I will give you the abridged version. The long version would take hours. So um, I've had a very winding path in life. I never intended to become an academic. Uh, I thought I was going to become a jazz musician, actually. Um, but uh, along the way, I got a little bit in disenfranchised with that lifestyle, and I started reading um, everything, really, but I got really interested in ecological economics. So I read some books by Herman Daly, um, Georgescu Rogan, and just anything I could get my hands on, and kind of realized... Uh, something I had never thought about before is that we were, you know, every year you read, or not every year, every day almost, you hear talk politicians talking about growth, growth, growth. And I never really thought about it. But when I read this, uh, this ecological economics literature, and they said, well, wait a minute, you know, you can't have uh, biophysical growth forever. The planet is finite. It's impossible. Uh, and I went, of course, of course. So I, um, I just got uh, from that moment was uh, obsessed with uh, this idea of limits to growth. So I went back to um, the very famous uh, book called The Limits to Growth, where they published some of the first modeling of, of resource limits and um, just went from there. In grad school, um, I was very interested in peak oil. Uh, which was popular around the time that I started my master's degree around 2011 was kind of when interest in peak oil was at a high. Uh, and I, the whole way through, I was really interested in energy consumption. And um, how I got interested in hierarchy is actually, um, what's the best way to say this quickly? It was basically an accident. 
I was, uh, I took a course taught by, at York University. I took a course taught by Jonathan Nitson, and he was uh, very interested in corporate power. And he said, look, if you want to study capitalism, you have to go out and uh, look at big corporations and look at the, actually look at the data. So as part of this course and few months later, I was experimenting with the data and looking at corporate concentration. And I found, um, to my surprise, that uh, corporate con concentration tend to, tended to increase with energy consumption. And I had never seen that correlation before. And so that I kind of got obsessed with it and dug into it, uh, ended up digging into it for much of my PhD. And, and the answer that I came up with, with what was going on here and what I will talk about um, in my little presentation shortly is that this was hierarchy. Um, uh, as energy increased, uh, hierarchy tended to grow. Uh, so the, it was basically an empirical discovery that after the fact, I kind of went back and tried to explain. Um, since then, I've gotten uh, much, much more data on it, and it seems to be a fairly robust finding. So it was basically an accident. Like, I was always interested in hierarchy in the sense that uh, I knew I didn't fit into hierarchies very well. Like, I, I really didn't like ever having a boss, and I didn't like the idea of commanding other people. So in that sense, I've always had a kind of anarchist sensibility, but that wasn't explicitly part of my research ever. So the fact that the focus on hierarchy entered my research was just a kind of empirical accident. But now it's kind of um, defines my research almost. So Great. Thanks for that uh, short introduction. Um, so yeah, as with uh, all of our guests, um, we thought to give you uh, a bit of time, uh, however much time you need, uh, to explain a little bit about the, the core arguments or insights that, that your paper provides. And if we understand uh, right, uh, you have a kind of presentation prepared. All right. So I'm going to talk about living the good life in a non-growth world. And I'm going to focus on the role of hierarchy in achieving or perhaps not achieving this goal. Uh, so degrowth, um, well, what is degrowth? Well, it's kind of defined by what it's not. It is not growth. So for the last 200 years, we've been consuming more and more resources, growing the economy, and it's been a great party, at least for those of us who are lucky to live in rich countries. Uh, but the party is over, right? So by almost uh, any measure you pick, we've overshot the limits to growth. Um, here's just a one figure. This is the ecological footprint, measures the amount of area uh, needed to support humanity. Uh, according to this measure, we, over, uh, we entered overshoot mode in around 1970, and now we're consuming what would take about 1.5 planets to uh, sustain um, inevitably or indefinitely. So we're in overshoot mode and we need to basically consume less. And that goes by many names, but I think the simplest name is just degrowth. Uh, 
we need to, if we're in a rich country like I live in, in Canada, consume less. So, uh, but we, at the same time as we need to consume less, I think we need equitable degrowth. We need to live in a just and equitable society for the simple reason that that's what will make uh, life worth living. Now, uh, we now have um, just overwhelming evidence that this, uh, that equality makes human welfare better. So the kind of the definitive book on the topic is called The Spirit Level by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. And they argue uh, that equality is better for everyone. And they just show tons of data uh, that as in, uh, income inequality increases, uh, human welfare uh, gets worse. And I think that's not hard to understand, right? Humans are a social species. Uh, it's our relationships that uh, matter most to us. And when those relationships are unequal or even despotic, uh, it's toxic to our welfare. So how can we achieve equitable degrowth? Well, the short answer is that we have no idea because no industrial society has tried it successfully. But I think there are clues, and I'm going to talk about one of those clues. Uh, I'm going to focus on hierarchy. So in my, in my own research, I've found uh, that hierarchy is the, it's a center of resource consumption and resource distribution. Uh, so briefly, what happens as societies consume more en energy is that they actually become more hierarchical. Hierarchy tends to grow with energy consumption. At the same time, hierarchy seems to play uh, a key role in how we distribute resources. It seems to be actually a driver of inequality. Uh, so I'm going to show you evidence for that. Um, <clears throat> so we'll, let's start with this idea that hierarchy grows with energy consumption. Well. The easiest way to see this is to look at firm size. Uh, so all of us, by firm, I mean companies where we work. Um, here's a plot. I'm going to talk through it. Uh, what I'm basically showing here is that um, as energy use per capita increases, average firm size also increases. So this is a, a scatter plot. Each dot it represents a country. Um, so we can see a trend line here. So as energy use per capita increases, um, so does the average size of firm. So for instance, Bangladesh is way down uh, here, consumes very little energy and it has small firms, whereas Qatar consumes about 50 times more energy and has much larger firms. Uh, so interestingly enough, the way that this ha actually happens is not um, most firms getting larger on average. Uh, that's what you would picture when I say a shift in the average. You would think about, for instance, human height. Uh, if I said people on average got five centimeters taller, you'd think literally most people uh, grew five centimeters. Well, with companies, with firm size changes, that's not actually what happens. It's a, it's a rich get richer dynamic. So uh, the vast majority of firms are small, uh, like think of a, like a mom and pop operation. And that doesn't change with energy use. What changes is the large firms. So I've plotted a, 
size distribution here, and I don't want to spend too much time going on the details, but what happens, excuse me, is that large firms get larger as energy use increases. So you can call that a rich get richer. So the mom and pop shops, the small businesses stay about the same size, and there are many and many of them, but there are a few large firms like uh, Walmart and Amazon or Microsoft, and they get bigger still. And this happens um, uh, reliably with en more energy consumption. So that's an interesting trend on its own. Well, what does it have to do with hierarchy? Well, I think from your daily experience, um, just going to work, you know that firms are hierarchies. If you go to work, you probably have a boss, you have maybe even have some subordinates. So it's no surprise, right, that firms are hierarchies. So as firms grow, that implies that hierarchy is also growing. Um, but we can actually go a step further and uh, look at some what, what we think would happen if hierarchy is in fact growing. And we can look at the growth of managers. So a manager's job is to um, oversee other people. It's a job that couldn't uh, happen without a hierarchy. So a managers sit at the top of hierarchies. And if a hierarchy grows, you assume there's going to be more managers. Um, so it turns out that when we look um, at energy use, um, it, it turns out that as energy use increases, so does the relative number of managers. So this is a plot, uh, again, of countries. Um, I've got energy use per capita on the bottom scale and the share of managers in total, total employment on the vertical scale. And each squiggly line here is the path through time of a country. Uh, now, the important thing is the overall trend. As energy use per capita increases, the relative number of managers grows. And I'm going to argue that this is indicative of the growth of hierarchy. And I can actually show this with a model. So here's replotting the same data, the growth of managers with energy use. And I can actually show that this is exactly what we would expect, this trend, with a simple model of hierarchy. So in this model, uh, as energy use increases, uh, firm size increases, and firms are hierarchically organized, and at the top of the hierarchy are managers. And we get this rainbow uh, trend. Now, most importantly, uh, is just the average trend. So uh, in the inset plot of the figure, the uh, blue curve is the growth of managers with energy use, and the red curve is the best fit model. So it more or less completely explains why um, <clears throat> um, managers grow with energy use. Now the take home message, that's kind of some complex modeling there, but the take home message is that this suggests that hierarchy grows with energy use. Now let's flip uh, gears a little bit and talk about uh, inequality. Uh, hierarchy, I'm going to argue, is a key driver of income inequality. Uh, for the simple reason um, that hierarchy concentrates power. 
So we can have a look at this. So imagine a, a simple hierarchy and I've drawn a little bit illustration of it here. Um, so this is a hierarchy where the lines indicate um, the um, chain of command. If we start at the bottom of the hierarchy, somebody at the bottom of the hierarchy has no subordinates. And in this particular hierarchy, if you're in the second rank, you have two subordinates. In the uh, third rank, you have six subordinates. In, and as we go up the hierarchy, um, the number of subordinates grows exponentially. So power is getting concentrated as we move up the hierarchy. And I like to give this um, hierarchical, uh, I like to define something called hierarchical power, which is just one plus the number of subordinates. Now, uh, I add one to the number of subordinates just because I think the person at the bottom of a hierarchy, even though they have no subordinates, the person at the bottom of a hierarchy um, still has some power. They still have control over themselves. So I add one to the number of subordinates just to symbolize that. Now, so to revisit this principle, hierarchy concentrates power. And the second principle is that those with power tend to use it to hoard resources, right? Uh, Elites are selfish, and if given the chance, they will use their power to, uh, to hoard resources. So if this is true, then hierarchical power, sorry, income should grow with hierarchical power. And in fact, it does. So what I'm plotting here is the way that income on the vertical axis relates to hierarchical power. Uh, <clears throat> so by definition, um, if you're at the bottom of a hierarchy, you have hierarchical power one and your relative income is one. And as you move up the hierarchy, your power grows and so does your income. And I've plotted four different data sources here. So the purple dots uh, are the US military. Uh, the green dots are case study firms. So people have gone out and measured hierarchies within um, different firms, about six of them. And the blue are US CEOs, as mostly Fortune 500 CEOs. And then the red is actually, which is a big outlier on this plot, is a slave plantation. I managed to find some data on a 19th century slave plantation. So there's a pretty strong correlation here. So as hierarchical power increases, so does relative income. So when I say that hierarchy drives inequality, this is what I mean. <clears throat> now, what does this have to do with degrowth? Well, here's some plausible reasoning. If we use less energy, uh, that's going to come um, with less hierarchy. Basically, we'll reverse the trend that we saw in the past. In the past, we used more energy and we had more hierarchy. So plausibly, in a degrowth future, regardless of how it happens, that trend will just revert. We'll have less, we'll use less energy and have less hierarchy. Well, if we have less hierarchy, might we also have less inequality? And I'm gonna actually say that the answer is probably no, unless we take extra steps to mitigate inequality. And I'm gonna walk you through the reasons why.
and I'm going to use a model of hierarchy that has three features. It has a span of control, which I'll talk about what that is. It has a size, so the number of people that work in the hierarchy. And then it has uh, what I call a degree of hierarchical despotism. So let's talk about the span of control. Um, now, what, it, what is the span of control? Well, it's just the number of direct subordinates per superior. Uh, so here's what it looks like. So I've, I've illustrated two hierarchies here. Um, both have 31 members, but they have differing spans of control. The hierarchy on the left has a span of control of five, which means that each superior controls five subordinates. And the one on the right has a span of control two. <clears throat> what changes is not the size of the hierarchy, but its shape. So we have a flat hierarchy on the left and a steep hierarchy on the right. And what, what, why does this matter for income inequality? Well, according to the evidence, income scales with hierarchical power. And what the span of control does by changing the shape of a hierarchy is um, influence the concentration of hierarchical power. So by concentration of hierarchical power, uh, re remember that I define hierarchical power as one plus the number of subordinates. So by concentration of hierarchical power, I mean that I we go through a hierarchy and measure the number of subordinates that uh, each individual has and calculate the distribution of, of hierarchical power. And then I would take the Gini index of uh, hierarchical power concentration, which if you're not familiar with the Gini index, it can range from zero being perfect equality to one being perfect uh, inequality. So why does this matter? Well, uh, concentrated power concentrates income. So the span of control um, uh, can perhaps influence income inequality in a hierarchy. Uh, but I actually find that um, this effect is not that great. So going back to the two hierarchies that I mentioned, both with 31 members, one that's flat on the left with a, a large span of control and one that's steep on the right, I've gone in my model and measured the Gini index of hierarchical power uh, in both of them. And I find that they're more or less the same. So the take home message here is that uh, changing the span of control isn't actually a very good way to limit inequality in a hierarchy. And I'll come back to that in a second. Now, what about the size of the hierarchy? So this is important for degrowth because if, uh, the, if past trends hold, we expect that hierarchy size should be uh, reduced if we decrease less energy. So um, hierarchy, uh, the size of a hierarchy does affect the concentration of power. And again, I'll measure this concentration with the Gini index, uh, just to illustrate the principle. If we start with one person who's self-employed, well, it's not really a hierarchy at all, but that's our baseline. The Gini index of power concentration is zero. Now, the interesting feature of hierarchy is that almost immediately, as soon as you add more people, power becomes more concentrated. So the Gini index, when you have three people in the hierarchy, 
one superior, two subordinates, the genie index of hierarchical power immediately explodes. So there's this very nonlinear effect with hierarchy, which I will come back to. Now it continues to grow as we add more people to the hierarchy, the genie index continues to grow, but it eventually plateaus. So there's a very nonlinear effect uh, uh, with inequality um, when you grow a hierarchy or conversely when you shrink it. So this is important, we'll come back to it, but let's lastly talk about the degree of hierarchical despotism. Now this is a provocative name that I basically just give to a model parameter. So I've found that income is proportional to hierarchical power and I, the slope of this proportionality, which is it's actually a power law, I just call D. Uh, but I give D this uh, uh, provocative name called the degree of despotism because I think it represents something hypo uh, provocative. Uh, by converting hierarchical power into income, basically you're subverting what is useful about a hierarchy. So the way I see a hierarchy is that it's useful because it coordinates people. It allows people to coordinate their action and yet it can be pathological. Indeed, it is pathological when elites use their power to hoard income. So the rate at which they do this, I call the degree of hierarchical despotism. So just to illustrate what this means, going back to this relation between uh, income and hierarchical power, I've replotted the, the actual empirical data here in gray and over top of it, I've illustrated um, just some, what can happen with different values for the degree of despotism. So when D is low, like 0 0.1, for instance, if somebody, imagine a CEO who had uh, a million subordinates. If despotism is low uh, around 0 0.1, that CEO is only going to earn about five times the average income of a typical employee or a, a low-ranked employee. Whereas if despotism is high, the same CEO might earn a million times a low-ranking employee. So there's this huge effect on income inequality. And I've uh, put this into a model just to see what happens. And Again, I'm looking here at income inequality, uh, the Gini index on the vertical axis, and the degree of hierarchical despotism on the horizontal axis. So this is what happens. As you ramp up income inequality in this hierarchy, and it's got 100,000 people in it, so it's a very large hierarchy, about the size of Microsoft, you can either have um, almost unbelievable equality or unbelievable inequality. And just to give you some perspective on this, um, the, these vertical lines are the extremes of inequality found in the World Bank database. So the World Bank reports uh, income inequality in, um, in uh, countries. And so the Czech Republic is at the extreme low end. In 1992, the Czech Republic had a Gini index of about 0.2, whereas uh, on the upper end, Malawi had a Gini index of about 0 0.65 um, in 1997. So by varying the, the degree of despotism, um, 
we can reproduce this extreme inequality or extreme equality. So what's the point that I'm trying to make here? Well, it's a bit complex, uh, but let me try to put it all together. Basically, the three features of hierarchy all influence inequality, but they do so in very different ways. And this chart here illustrates that. Um, the span of control. So think about making a firm flatter. It seems like you're reducing hierarchy, and in a way you are. Uh, but what my model suggests is that that doesn't have a very strong effect on income inequality. So here, uh, I'm plotting the Gini index here um, in my model. And uh, on the bottom here is the normalized parameter. So all these uh, features of hierarchy, hierarchy size, despotism, span of control, those parameters can vary. But I've just plotted them on the same scale. So with this blue curve here, that's changing the span of control. So as the span of control grows, the hierarchy gets flatter and income inequality decreases. Um, but it's not a very large effect. So it's a hard way to decrease inequality. Now, what about hierarchy size? And I think this is important for degrowth because as, um, uh, as energy use decreases in the future, I think it's plausible that hierarchy will also decrease. But there's a problem, and this curve, this green curve, illustrates the problem, at least according to uh, my model. So imagine taking a country like, uh, sorry, a, a, a company like Microsoft and uh, shrinking it until there's a significant um, reduction in income inequality. And ask yourself, how, how far would we have to shrink it until the hierarchy uh, shed enough ranks that income inequality decreased significantly? And the answer, at least according to this model, is that we would have to shrink it about 99%. So we would have to sh uh, shrink Microsoft down until it had about 1,000 employees. And only then would decreasing hierarchy further um, significantly reduce income inequality. So this is an unintuitive feature of a hierarchy. Um, but it basically has to do with the way the span of control works. The span of control is nested. And that means as we get to very large hierarchies, new ranks are added or subtracted, depending if the hierarchy is growing, at a very slow rate. Whereas when the hierarchy is small, ranks are added rapidly. Um, so there, this nonlinear effect means that unless we have drastic, drastic reduction in the size of a hierarchy, it's unlikely to um, lead to more inequality. Whereas um, the, the exact reverse is true with what I call despotism. And that's just simply the rate at which people um, convert their power into income. So despotism is this red curve, and it has a drastic, drastic effect on income inequality. Um, and I think that's important because it means all is not lost. So talking about degrowth, a degrowth future, 
If we use less energy, I think it's plausible that we'll have less hierarchy in the future. It's just going to reverse the trends of the past. And it would be nice to think that if we use less energy, uh, that would lead automatically to, to uh, an equal society, an equitable society. Uh, but the problem is I don't think this is true. At least my modeling efforts suggest this is not true, that if we shrink our our firms and our governments uh, from consuming less, this is not going to lead automatically to an equitable, an equitable world. And I'm going to close with just some evidence on that front that can kind of help us think about these things. Um, if we want degrowth, all is not lost because what we really need to do um, is limit hierarchical despotism. And we can just, I'm going to show you some uh, evidence from real world institutions just to try to guide um, our thinking on this front. So what I'm showing here are my estimates for the degree of hierarchical despotism within different institutions. And just to remind you, this is degree of hierarchical despotism. That's my name for the rate that income grows with power, hierarchical power. In a, in a hierarchy. So on the very low end, perhaps surprisingly, is a military, the US military. Um, the US military may have a strict chain of command, um, but it's actually surprisingly equal. So the degree of despotism um, uh, is very, very low. Now, is that a feature of the US uh, or of all militaries, I should say? And I think the answer is no. There are very despotic militaries out there, uh, especially when they um, um, run the government, when there's a military dictatorship. So the reason the US military is so equal, uh, I think, is very clear. It's because it's under civilian control and the US government itself is um, uh, responsible to uh, voters. And voters really don't like it when politicians or public officials enrich themselves on the public purse. So the pay in the US military is strictly limited. Now, on the opposite end is a very small institution called Cannon's Point. Now, so th this is actually a slave estate in the uh, US in the 19th century. Um, so the owner of Cannon's Point had about 100 slaves. And also that's by modern standards, very small. We would say that's a pretty small firm, but this slave estate, the owner by my estimates earned about a uh, hundred times the living standard of, a, of an average slave, which <clears throat> translates into enormous hierarchical despotism. Now, I don't think it's surprising that a slave estate would be despotic. You know, if you think about a slave, um, a state. It's kind of the purest form of hierarchy. So a hierarchy is the top down, uh, is defined by the top down flow of power. Uh, in purest form, there's no uh, reverse flow of accountability. There's no bottom up accountability. A slave is somebody who's lost um, the ability to hold their, their owner, their ruler to account. So it's unsurprising that a slave estate would plumb the depths 
of despotism. Um, now, what does this have to do with a degrowth future? Well, many degrowth um, writers and theorists tend to focus on a bright future, an eco, what I would call an ecotopia, where we're consuming fewer resources and at the same time, we're, we're living in a pleasant society. Um, the problem with this is I, obviously I would like to live in that world, but the problem is that it's not um, guaranteed to happen. We could easily end up in some sort of eco-feudalism. And this graph kind of illustrates that, right? Um, this slave estate here, Cannon's Point slave estate, uh, was an agrarian institution. And agrarian societies use order, uh, orders of magnitude less energy than uh, an industrial country like Canada. So in terms of degrowth, they're far more sustainable uh, and yet completely despotic. I would not want to or want wish anybody to live in uh, this slave estate. And yet when we say measure its uh, material consumption, it would be extremely uh, or far more sustainable say than the US military. The US military consumes just vast quantities of energy. And yet in terms of uh, income distribution within the hierarchy, extremely equal. So if we want the take home message here is that if we want to maintain uh, uh, a society worth living in, we need to limit, I think, hierarchical despotism. And that will stave off, hopefully, eco-feudalism. All right. Thank you, guys. Uh, Michelle, did you want to start off with, with one of the questions we prepared? Uh, well, maybe a first clarification, um, because the, the way they use the word despotism, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think maybe the slave uh, thing is a good example. Uh, but generally speaking, I think human evolution was that it, you know, feudal type societies, personal despotism was very high. You know, the, the power of a person over another person mm -hmm. was very direct. And it was all about fealty, loyalty, um, you know, very harsh punishments. Uh, you'd go in a modern corporation um, and, you know, the, the pay grade is, is, and the capital ownership is very, very unequal. But at the same time, the kind of working environment, you know, is very much about a bunch of experts that need to work together. And it kind of appears uh, in some way uh, to be more soft and equal. So have you, have you thought about that? Like yep. the way you use uh, despotism in the way that people maybe understand despotism a bit yeah. differently? So I am using the word in a kind of technical way here, only referring to, to income, not necessarily the strength of the the power relations, which is how I think most people would interpret it. Uh, I have, though, um, very roughly tried to go back and and look at this sort of thing. And the, from the data that I can tell, it does look like so. There are two things at work that kind of make it confusing. On the one hand, the, just the scale of hierarchy tends to grow with energy use. 
And by its nature, when that happens, the top pays seem to skyrocket. So for instance, um, uh, we see this all the time just in our life, but you don't really pay it any matter. Like I grew up working in a small company, small um, uh, clothing uh, firm in, in my hometown. And the, 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 the business owner did well and they maybe made, um, I don't know, four or five times what the average employee made, which seemed like a, a lot to me. But then when you scale that up to a, um, a Fortune 500 company, say like Facebook, um, Mark Zuckerberg, depending on how you take into account his stock ownership, can earn 10,000 times the average employee. Well, we take that, we see that value and we say, wow, that's, that's um, extreme inequality. But the fact is that he's um, running a huge, huge company, which to take this into big, in the big picture is far larger than most feudal um, hierarchies. So feudal hierarchies, I would say were despotic, both in the sense of, um, um, the strength of the power relation, but also I suspect, and we don't have very good data on this, but I suspect in the rate that income grew with, with power, but they were very small. Um, even a, um, you know, a major feudal lord or a major slaveholder, say, would maybe have a thousand serfs, maybe 10,000 maximum, whereas 10,000 uh, employees is not a big company now. It's a medium-sized company. We have companies like Walmart with millions of employees. We have governments with uh, um, millions of employees too. And so you can find it, what seems like a paradox in that the top, uh, top um, CEOs can earn vast, vast incomes, which completely dwarf that of the average worker. And yet, the hierarchy overall is probably more equal than the feudal hierarchy, just because we have to take into account that it's extremely large. And when income grows with each rank, there's just that many more ranks to see an extreme income. But this, that CEO is also very rare. So it's not, a, it's not necessarily a paradox that when you look inside modern corporations, um, the actual working relations seem quite equal between ranks and the income itself may be fairly equal between adjacent ranks. But when it's a huge corporation, there's still that, that there's so much room for big um, disparities between the top and the bottom. Unfortunately, this is something that's not well studied either in modern corporations or in, uh, in feudal uh, um, manners and the problem is just there's not a lot of data. The firm data, it's a, I bang my head up against this all the time, right? The data is proprietary for firms and they don't want you to know what their pay grades are. Right. Okay, so I have another question, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. That's something that, that struck me. Um, and I'm not sure if I completely remember what you said, but I, uh, it triggered me. Um, is You said something about like a thousand employees. Uh, as some kind of limit. So in, in our wiki at the P2P Foundation, we have this whole area about group thresholds. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like you have uh, seven people, 25 people, 
And each time that a, a, an organization reaches a certain threshold, the dynamics change for some reason. Like for example, you know, if you do a startup under 25, everybody knows each other. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a kind of dynamism. There's one one group, uh, and then suddenly you can see already at 25 there's some kind of bureaucracy uh, is kind of start to function. You get you get factions. The new mm -hmm. the new people that come in no longer you know have the same enthusiasm as the the first group. Uh, they you know they just come for the job. They they're not kind of the same motivation. Anyway, mm -hmm. so in a similar way. You know, if you you would organize hierarchy differently. Uh, so, what was that about that thousand? As a so, threshold? I think because you're maybe referring be... to yeah. 150 Dunbar's number. Is that what you're? 150 is one of these uh, thresholds. There's more. Yeah. You know, now this is studied more in detail, and and I I looked into this some years ago, and you have various. You know, under sure. like seven, twenty-five. They and they each time it changes, and mm. So what oh, you were saying remember, yeah. that you said something that changes 1000 and what it struck me is, well, maybe that would be like if you had an antitrust policy. Oh, that so that, might... that number came up in my, yeah. I was imagining this hypothetical situation where we took a big, big company like Microsoft and started to shrink it down, basically break it up maybe um, until each little part had much less inequality. So the, in my and this was a model that I was doing it in, and what I found basically in this model is that you don't get any significant reduction in inequality until you've gotten down to about a thousand members. Now that exact value depends on, um, for instance, the span of control, which I just picked a value. Um, so I wouldn't make too much of that exact value. But I think it, it is actually important in a kind of bigger sense, in the sense that, um, you know, the, the, the looming question in a lot of the social sciences was why we have inequality at all, right? We have so much evidence that uh, we evolved as a fairly equal species. And we know that hunter-gatherers, at least as many of them exist today, are very equal. And yet, everywhere we look in civilization, there's inequality. It never really goes away. And I think my answer to this is that it's about hierarchy. As soon as you have any kind of hierarchy at all, even if it's quite smaller, you suddenly have inequality. And that stems from the chain of command. Um, now, you could say, well, we should just get rid of the hierarchy. But I think that's a catch-22, because I do think um, that hierarchy has a purpose. It, um, its purpose is not necessarily to benefit um, people per se, but I think it, it allows hierarchical groups to outcompete non-hierarchical groups, often just because size is, is an advantage. Um, so if that's the case, then there's an advantage to hierarchy, um, but it's, it, it's pathological in the sense that you know, humans are not a, a, a purely altruistic sp a species. You can't put somebody at the top of a large hierarchy and say, you have absolute power, um, please don't abuse it. Like 90% of people are going to use that power to benefit themselves to some extent. And then you have the, 
the um, you know psychopaths who will just do terrible things with it. But just even the most um, benign person, I think, will say, "Well, you know, I deserve a raise, and so I have the power to uh, get one." <laughs> um, yeah, so that's a that's a feature of hierarchy that I am fascinated by in that it's it's extremely nonlinear, and you would think that breaking up um, a large hierarchy might lead to inequality, or sorry, lead to more equality, uh, and it will if you go long if you break it up into small enough pieces, uh, but you have to go a long, long way before you see a significant um, reduction. Right. Uh, that's that's what I find interesting in your approach is that you could actually conclude then that, you know, maybe if you want to have a more equal society, that we would, we would have to know about that threshold. Mm -hmm. And so organize ourselves in groups of 1000 would be an approach, you know, in terms of organizational uh, size that could be, you know, in, 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 a, in a series of solutions, I think that might be something to look at. That's kind of what I find interesting in, in, in your saying that. Yeah. yeah, it is definitely something to look at. Um, kind of my point, though, is that, that um, it, assuming that we're kind of stuck with hierarchy, I mean, I like to scheme about a, a societies this is kind of my anarchist tendency i like to scheme about societies that lack any sort of hierarchy but i find it very implausible when i try to imagine it happening so assuming we're stuck with hierarchy uh, that chain of command the best thing you can do is make it accountable and i think the more you make it accountable the more it almost isn't a hierarchy any, anymore that's not the right word for it so for instance um uh, Michael Albert wrote a book about participatory economics, and he kind of imagines a hierarchy in the sense that there's nested sets of uh, right. councils. So there's that nesting structure, which is the basic feature of a hierarchy, but he imagines it without the power dynamics. So there's kind of this pure accountability from the bottom where you, yes, we'll vest uh, power to um, this person at the at the next level, but at any point we can take that power back if we don't find that you're doing a good job. So if you imagine uh, a chain of not it's not a chain of command that's the wrong word, but a nested structure where there's kind of extreme bottom up accountability, you could plausibly have a very large, um, for lack of a better word, hierarchy but it would still be very equal. So that's another, I think, yeah. approach that's plausible. I, so I, I have another suggestion um, and, and to see what you think about it. And so it's, the, the notion is that of anti-oligarchic protocols. So if you read books like uh, Societies Against the State from Pierre Clastre, mm -hmm. and uh, the book by Marshall Salins about the original abundant uh, society, what you see is that uh, tribal civilizations had actually a whole series of protocols mm -hmm. that continuously rebalanced the drive towards hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So they they knew it was happening, but and they kind of dealt with it by all kinds of techniques. You know, like the potlash, where the surplus would be feasted, um, and by uh, limiting the power of the chief, and you know, there are all kinds of techniques that they use and. 
um, I look briefly at medieval cities where they also had that. You know, the, the guild cities had all kinds of methods. For example, in Dubrovnik, the, as soon as the mayor was elected, um, the, um, uh, he was kind of imprisoned in his villa, right? So anybody who visited him would have to sign a paper. Uh, and so corruption was kind of very difficult to do. And so I'm just thinking in today that, you know, in, in, in networks and in collective intelligence in, in uh, collaborative ecosystems that we could be working on these anti-oligarchic anti -oligarchic protocols so that we would, would recognize that hierarchy is natural, that it arises from the interactions and, and, uh, and at the same time would say, well, you know, we can kind of moderate it. And there's a, you know, we kind of imagine a science of protocols that continuously rebalance the the drive. Yeah, well, and something that I've written about um, uh, in other places, but I think is worth mentioning is one of the key drivers, I think, of hierarchy is group competition, intense group competition. So I think that's given us, personally, I think group competition is why it's given us some of the nicest features of humanity, but also some of the, the worst. So I think group competition is a main reason why we're, um, we're very social animals. So we're social because we, we organize in groups. But once you have very intense group competition, I think there's can be a very uh, strong pressure to have hierarchy. And one of my favorite authors on this is uh, Peter Turchin, who says, you know, why did the um, the original high, um, agrarian societies, why would they let these despotic rulers, and they were, I mean, if you believe the writing that, that's, uh, that they left behind, just insanely despotic, why would these um, societies organize uh, under these rulers? And his argument is basically, well, uh, similar to to what we see now, like the ruler would say, well, just give me some power and I will organize the military and we'll defeat our enemies. And then I'll give up the power, you know, after, but then they wouldn't give up the power, right? So we see it just happens over and over and over again. When you get an us versus them dynamic, a strong leader uh, can come along and uh, accumulate a lot of power. So it's something that um, I think uh, we constantly have to guard against. So you can, you can, um, <clears throat> you know, should focus on how to limit power within your own group, let's say, but you have to also then take in the dynamics of, of other groups. But, but I agree, that's something that is very interesting. All the dynamics, all the systems that have evolved to kind of check power, I'm interested in, and I don't think they're they're researched enough, personally. And um, maybe one more question, because I'm, I'm not sure it's in your text for Spider, but I think I read it somewhere else, that you also explain multi-level selection theory. I, I think yes, you were I'm interested in that. Yes, I'm very interested in that. I don't think I put that in the Spider's text. And if I did, it was only in passing. I think that's... Um, absolutely essential to understanding our place in the web of life so maybe if i can do a little i'll do a little one minute summary so uh, if you look at the grand scheme of 
of life, there's been these huge evolutionary transitions. And this idea of multi-level selection um, <clears throat> kind of explains what's going on. So it, just to frame it, the idea of multi-level selection is that there can be selection at any level, not only the individual, which is what most people think of when they think of Darwinism, is that individuals are competing with each other. Well, they are, but multi-level says, selection says, well, you can actually look at groups. And in fact, what even is an individual? How did they become an individual? You, so you can go all the way down. And in evolutionary history, I was fascinated to just look at the whole spectrum of it. And what it is, is a spectrum of what were pre previously autonomous units organizing in groups. And you basically can go to the very beginning of life. Um, molecules somehow organizing into proteins and then they become a new group and when whenever this happens you have this new group suppressing competition within itself and uh, and then competing amongst other groups so then uh, we've got cells and so cells they suppress competition within themselves and then start to compete with other cells then you got multicellular organisms. Yeah, so we're multicellular organisms and our bodies suppress competition within ourselves. Um, so, and when we fail to do that, that's something called cancer, when individual cells multiply un, unbounded. Um, and then humans or social animals are really the next step. They're individual organisms, multicellular organisms, organizing in large groups. Um, so the most well-recognized outside of humans are ants, the eusocial insects. But humans have kind of taken this to a, a huge um, new level. And I think group selection or multi-level selection is important to understand it. And at the center of it really is this dynamic between selfishness and altruism and trying to remember the catchphrase i'll try to do it justice so this idea that um, within groups selfishness always trumps altruism so if i'm in a in an army let's say and that army is attacking another group it's always best for me to lay at the back of the army and i won't die and my relative fitness will increase but when everybody does that, um, it's catastrophic. So selfish individuals trump um, uh, altruistic individuals within groups, but between groups, altruism is best. So if you have an altruistic group, it will trump a group of individualists. So this, this dynamic um, really lies at the center of the evolution of our capacity for altruism. So the reason, so it, if you believe this theory, the reason that humans um, are social animals and that we help other people um, is because we've evolved to do so. And it's been a group level um, uh, selection to do that. And, and, and at the same time, we suppress um, selfishness. So we've and, and this is not only, um, I should say, genetic evolution, it's also cultural evolution. Um, so I've been mostly influenced by um, the biologist David Sloan Wilson, who's been a tireless champion of 
um, this idea of um, multi-level selection. And now he's really branched out into researching cultural evolution from that lens. So it's really interest, um, influenced my thinking. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm through with my questions. So, Rock, maybe you have a few more or maybe it's time to wrap up. I'm not sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. Thank you for all of that. Uh, I have maybe just one more uh, follow up question. Um, so in your paper, Blair, uh, you kind of end with uh, the kind of um, idea that the causal direction uh, between you know, degrowth and social hierarchy uh, remains uh, rather unclear. Uh, in our discussion, we uh, sort of mentioned a bit about, you know, the, the drivers of hierarchy or path dependencies, if you will. Um, maybe we can focus a little bit on uh, challenges of de-hierarchization um, in terms of, you know, drivers, leverages to be used. Yeah. Um, because I suppose uh, also today when we, you know, uh, despotism or the kind of new rise of authoritarianism mm -hmm. but at the same time the states for example being historically positioned to have uh, regulative legitimacy or the only uh, body with the regulative legitimacy that's required to intervene in markets even individual firms and so on uh, very much so also in the context of climate change and vis-a-vis uh, -vis that uh, degrowth um, you talked a lot about accountability, uh, bottom-up accountability. Maybe there's some other drivers of the hierarchization that uh, are not currently in, in the formula, uh, so to say. Hmm. Well, I mean, first off, I'll just admit that there's a lot that we don't know. Uh, so I'm basically speculating here, but let's speculate. What I like about the this thinking is that it takes the um, the focus off of consumption. So right away when you talk degrowth, um, you're automatically just talking about the choice to consume less, which is fine, um, but uh, you're not necessarily focusing on the social relations that lead to that consumption and in my mind that's everything I, I can try to consume less in my daily life but it's really my social relations uh, with everybody around me that that basically stop me from doing that um, it's almost impossible right we're social animals it's impossible for us to do things our, on our own so what I like about focusing on hierarchy is that it kind of clarifies what is otherwise in the background, which is that rather than try to limit consumption directly, it may be that we can change our social relations and the effect will be to limit consumption. And I think that in some ways is more um, palatable. Uh, so I'm on Twitter and there's, um, uh, I won't mention names, but economists, well-known economists um, basically saying degrowth is can't happen. It's a terrible idea. And probably if you have, you asked an average working class American, uh, how would you feel about consuming less? They would say, well, it's a terrible idea. Well, because nobody wants to have less stuff when it, because it, 
they're just imagining, well, I get less, but you know, all my friends get to keep the same. Well, in, if instead you focus on changing the social relations, say for instance, having less hierarchy, less despotism, and the, the reduction in consumption just comes from that, um, it's just a happy side effect. I think that's almost more palatable. And especially when you're talking about um, uh, reigning in inequality. So one thing I didn't do in the paper, but one thing I would like to look at is, for instance, just imagine that we achieve degrowth by rapidly decreasing inequality. So what I mean by that is hold some, take some um, baseline level, say, working class level of consumption and rather than bringing everybody's um, level of consumption down bring the top down compress the top down to them so you know bill bill gates just wrote a book about climate change right meanwhile he's um flying around the world um in jets burning something like 1600 tons of carbon right so i'm thinking well bring those um, elites bring their consumption way, way, way down to um, everybody else's levels. How much would that actually reduce our um, our um, um, use of energy? And I think it, it could be quite drastic. But but what is exciting, just to kind of summarize, as you say, is that it's plausible just looking at the the evidence on its own. Although we we don't really know, but it's plausible that if we try to to reduce hierarchy that the net effect would just be to that we consume less energy and uh, it's a to it's a very different way of looking at it we start with the social relations and the the resource consumption follows whether that actually happens or not uh, we won't know until we try thank you for that <clears throat> Uh, maybe one more just follow-up idea, I suppose, or maybe a point for discussion. Uh, in talks of degrowth, a lot of the times people kind of take the slogan as face value and kind of, you know, antithesis of, of degrowth or a kind of, you know, downturn of degrowth in, in and of itself. Uh, whereas a lot of the argument also is kind of, you know, hidden within the details of, of uh, transitioning to very different kind of uh, production and use models. Uh, so not consuming less per se, but uh, consuming differently, right? Uh, for example, like, um, uh, you know, sharing economy or like radical sharing economy models and, and what that does to the throughput of energy and materials, uh, for example, in, in vehicles and so on. Uh, you mentioned licensing as being, you know, kind of a key issue. And uh, what well, part of the commons movement, uh, for example, has been a lot about, you know, open sourcing production um, mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Uh, so maybe those uh, are also some some areas uh, to work on as, as leverages for the uh, mm -hmm. growth. Mm -hmm. and the well, one thing to mention is... Uh, Another way of looking at this that um, my colleague uh, Jonathan Nitzen and uh, Shimshon Bickler have explored more is that it, one reason that energy may grow with hierarchy is that hierarchy is in some ways driving waste. 
And I think that's quite plausible. It, um, you know, you take a look at big corporations and a lot of what they're spending money on, a lot of the things that they're consuming aren't for anybody's benefit. It's just because that's what the hierarchy has decided to do to make a profit, right? So not only are they making, let's say, useless uh, products that we don't really need, but they're also just internal to the hierarchy driving consumption. Um, so if you want to look at, at it that way, um, there, and this maybe kind of relates also to David Graeber's idea of, of bullshit jobs, where we have these layers of jobs that they're part of the hierarchy, they serve the hierarchy, but they don't necessarily serve um, humanity in any decent sense. Um, so I think there's a lot of areas um, like that to explore. It's definitely a, a good avenue for I can maybe give a little anecdote. Because, uh, you know, I used sure. to be an executive 20 years ago, and I was literally living at 100 meters of my office. And so I told them, I, you know, I, when I was hired, I don't need a car. Um, and they literally obliged me to have a BMW <laughs> because it was part of the prestige. And, you know, nobody at that level of the organization could even be seen driving with, you know, any more simple car. It just wasn't possible. And so I agree with you. A lot of these expenses are driven by the need to maintain status and prestige in inter-elite competition. Hmm. Because yeah. you're always, when you're, whatever level you are, you know, even if you have 50 billion, what you're looking at is the other people mm -hmm. with in your similar level. And you want to be better than them because otherwise you are losing prestige mm -hmm. uh, compared to them. And I think that's a really huge dynamic. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, wanted to confirm that I think this is, and this is automatic. There's, as an individual, there's very little you can do against it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's the social logic that, that does that. Yeah. Right. Um, so I suppose, yeah, it's time for our um, final question, uh, which we again ask uh, all our uh, guests, which is uh, kind of for our listeners and viewers, uh, where could they, you know, you've mentioned some of the materials that have been your own inspiration. Maybe we can have a, another roundup of those and maybe some others, uh, also networks, initiatives and so forth um, that kind of deal with this question of hierarchy and, and degrowth sure. that would be good to highlight. Sure. Uh, well, I will say that I, I blog. Uh, regularly about my own research. So the name of my blog is Economics from the Top Down. Uh, so I write about my own research and other ideas that I think are interesting. Uh, more broadly about hierarchy. So I have been very influenced about, um, by a school of thought called uh, Capital as Power, which basically takes the, the idea of capital as a not a thing, not machines and infrastructure per se, but a, a financial magnitude. Um, um, and so that there's a website called capitalaspower.com where there are many people contributing research and there's a very dynamic forum, which I think is one of the best places to, to talk about 
hierarchy just because this is these are people who are already interested very interested in power dynamics in society uh, so there's um, great discussion going on there and then more generally just in terms of um, uh, <clears throat> reading I re uh, one of my favorite journals is called the real world economics journal so one of the great things about that is that it's free you don't need uh, any uh, academic subscription and it's very well written so it's written um, so that I think anybody can read it you don't need a specialized training in economics and I, th that's really the way it should be right we're talking about um, ideas that are central to um, a democratic society and so we should all be uh, thinking about them. We don't need, like the, the jargon of economics really obfuscates from having a, a wider discussion. So if you're interested in these ideas, um, so I have published in, in that journal too, but, but it's just um, in general, a fantastic journal where ideas that are not allowed in prestigious academic journals and neoclassical economic journals are um, are allowed to flourish so degrowth ideas about degrowth um, criticizing capitalism um, you name it it's probably been published at some point in that journal great thank you so much uh, i'm sure our listeners will appreciate those plugins and ways that yeah they can engage with all of this material that's being generated uh, with, with that uh, thank you so much Blair for joining us today and, and discussing with us a little bit about uh, this specific topic as said uh, uh, we think it's it's one of the key topics that we should be talking about in tandem uh, with with others in this uh, compendium um, yeah thanks so much again Thank you for having me. My pleasure.